So now on to the task at hand this morning. First, I want to welcome everyone here for this Palm Sunday of 2023. It seems to sneak up on me every year, but today is the day in the church calendar where we typically remember Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He entered into the city being hailed as a king and celebrated with the words, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, for those of you who have been around for a while, before I was the main preacher, Palm Sunday still ended up being kind of the sermon that I got every year. And I really enjoyed getting to dive into to the meaning of Palm Sunday and to be aware that our Savior willingly rode into Jerusalem. He chose to rode in, ride into this city on a donkey knowing that he was riding to his own execution. I think that's hard for us to, to fathom because none of us have, to my knowledge, ever been in that situation with a, a price on our heads and an execution forthcoming. But he rode into Jerusalem willingly, knowing that he was riding to his own execution. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. Our Savior was not one that was subjected to anything. Our Savior was one who willingly laid down his life, willingly underwent the cruelest torture that mankind could come up with, willingly went to the cross for his people, that his Father might be glorified and that his people might be reconciled to himself. We talked some last week about that question, why would our Savior willingly lay down his life? Jesus laid down his life that in his flesh he might be our peace. Peace between Jew and Gentile as well as peace between man and God. That through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, would have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, this week, we're going to look at this last section of Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul's going to introduce this beautiful picture of the church, of his people, as the household of God going to take this two ways. He's going to start with the household as a family, and then he's going to finish with the household also as the building of the temple. I wanted to ask one question before we get into our passage. I wanted to know how many of us have ever been the odd one out. I don't mean in just kind of the minimal way where you're the only person in the room wearing gray socks or you're the only person in the room that has blue eyes, little ways that are 
not immediately obvious. I'm meaning more the glaringly obvious neon sign type way. The one Oilers jersey in the saddle dome. The lone man standing in the middle of the women's section of a department store looking lost and confused. The, the ninth wheel where you're out with four couples and you're the one single person. How many of us have ever been that odd person out where we are just so obviously and uncomfortably singled out? Humans naturally have always sought community. That is a big part of what it means to be made in the image of God. As Tony mentioned earlier about God as being three in one, the triune God, God has for eternity been in community with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God created mankind, that is one piece that he passed along to us that we we wish to be in community both with each other as fellow humans and with him. But being an obvious odd man out is a stark barrier to any kind of community. And to be a Gentile was to always be the odd man out as far as God's people were concerned. Even the few God-fearers who were accepted into the community of faith in Israel were still the odd ones out. They were still on the, on the fringe. But no more. No more is there an odd one out in the community of faith. Reconciled in Christ, we have been made one people. We are going to read this morning's passage, but in order to make sense of it, we are going to include last week's passage as well. So we're going to start from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to read down to the end of chapter 2. Ephesians starting in chapter 2, verses 11 through to the end of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you were, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And getting into our passage this morning. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Praise God for his word. Would you pray with me? O oh God, that you would reveal to us what it means that we are being built together into a dwelling place for you according to the work of the Spirit. Lord, may we be built up even this morning. Lord, be at work within us, shaping us into whatever shape you see fit, drawing us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and making your dwelling place, making this church to be a place where you are worshipped in spirit and in truth, where your people live according to your word, and where you are glorified in all that is said and done. Lord, we thank you for this body that you've given us, that we do not worship alone, that we do not stand as islands, but that we worship together in a local church, and that our local church worships together with a global, holy Catholic church, that we share together in the worship of the one true God through his Son, Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, work in us. Make your word clear to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're reading along with me, you would have seen that when we switched into our passage this morning at verse 19, it started with the phrase, so then. And hopefully, if you've been kind of following along with how we how we preach, and the fact that we are looking at the context of what is going on here, that so then is a signpost for us. That so then means, okay, this is dependent on what came before. That's why we reread last week's passage, because there's something there that makes what we see here true and makes it pop. Christ has, through his blood, made peace between the Jew and the Gentile and has evened the playing field such that it is only through him that we both have access in one spirit to God the Father. Again, if you have any questions as to whether the Trinity, the triune nature of God is taught in Scripture... Through Christ, Son, we both have access in one Spirit, Holy Spirit, to the Father, God the Father. The Trinity comes up over and over again throughout Ephesians and indeed throughout the Scriptures. But we as brothers and sisters, all of us Gentiles who are in Christ, we would have been outsiders, even if we had somehow come to faith in this national God of Israel, even if we had come to believe in him, we still would have remained outsiders. And until Christ came, even those Jews who were faithful in the law, 
they were still waiting for a Savior, for the Messiah to come and ratify all of the promises that God had made. Indeed, so many in the Jewish faith today are still waiting that one day a Messiah would come and ratify this promise of God, but we have that ratification, we have that promise, and we as Gentiles, through Christ, have been grafted in. We are no longer the odd ones out. Indeed, in Christ's church, there is no longer an odd one out. In unity with all of God's people, we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I was kind of interested by the language that Paul chose there, fellow citizens with the saints. Initially, that gave me pause because I'm looking and going, well, aren't we, if we are in Christ, aren't we the saints? The answer is yes, we are the saints. But Paul also acknowledged in Ephesians that there was simply a first wave. We hear regularly throughout the Gospels and throughout Paul's letters that the Gospel was given to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Jesus came to his people. He called many of his people. And then it was spread out to the Gentiles. And if you have any questions as to whether we also qualify as the saints, just look at the very beginning of chapter 1. Paul refers to the Ephesians believers as the saints in Ephesus. So in our passage, when he says that we are fellow citizens with the saints, he's simply referring to a group of people that were the first ones to believe in God. But now there is no distinction. And I think he wants to drive that home because as these Ephesian believers are being invited into this greater church, he needs to help them see that there was once them and us, but now we are one body. So when we come by the shed blood of Christ, we are invited in and there is a fundamental change in citizenship we are now fellow citizens with the saints. We are not fellow citizens with national Israel. You cannot now go and get yourself a passport in Israel based on your new citizenship. And no longer are the believers in national Israel fellow citizens in Canada just because there's brothers and sisters who believe in there. We have been given a citizenship that transcends the national border. Citizens, a citizenship in God's country. In Paul's parallel letter to the Ephesians, he wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1 of this change in citizenship, starting in verse 13. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But as if that weren't enough, 
the Lord goes even further. One could go from being a slave in one kingdom to being a slave in another kingdom and not being a whole lot better off. Maybe a little bit better because the other kingdom's nicer, but he doesn't just take us from our slavery to sin in Satan's kingdom and just poured us over. Not only do we become citizens of a better kingdom, we now find ourselves a part of God's family, the royal family in the kingdom of God. Paul restates that in Romans 9. He quotes the prophet Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. If we have placed our faith and our hope and our trust in Christ, if we have been called according to his word, we find ourselves called the sons of the living God. And I know that many of us have realized this. We have worked through this in the past, but take a moment to step back and gasp in wonder with me. We are people who are ultimately deserving of God's wrath. We were by nature children of wrath and sons of disobedience. Willingly, we were that way. We have not only been allowed into God's kingdom, but we have been called into his family. I think I'm pretty safe to say that someone who would be so described as children of wrath and sons of disobedience would not exactly be your first choice of additions to even your imperfect family. Some of you have had the opportunity to see additions to your family, whether it is through marriage or adoption or whatever it might be, where you had a choice. You had a choice to call someone into your family, and there is always this kind of background check that goes on where we go, okay, is especially as far as the marriage side goes, we rake the possible new suitor over the coals going, is this person who is joining my family worthy to join my family? We were not worthy to join God's family. And yet, in Christ, we have been called worthy. By the work of Christ, God grafts us into his perfect, eternal family. May we bring glory, glory to God. And to drive this home, Paul now kind of switches this in imagery of not only have we been brought into God's family, now he switches to this imagery of the household of God being the literal physical household, a building, a building that eventually we find out is to be God's temple. God's family, Jew and Gentile, are not only a part of God's household in the familial sense, but we are literally God's house. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think by now everyone knows that in order to build a building, probably the most important step is the laying of the foundation. The foundation of a building is what ultimately determines its maximum strength. You can build the most durable and stable of buildings, but you put that on a faulty foundation and that building will never remain stable. What then is the foundation that our passage identifies as the bedrock upon which the Lord's temple is built? If I'm thinking of God building his own temple, he is going to want to lay the perfect and most stable foundation for his temple. So what is the foundation for God's temple? Our immediate guess might be Jesus. The only thing that we come up with at first glance of, okay, what is perfect and stable that God could build his temple on? Curiously, that's not the sole part of this Sunday school answer. The foundation we are given is that of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus being the cornerstone. Knowing that today there are those who would walk around, men and women, who would call themselves apostles, who would call themselves prophets, are these men and women part of the foundation on which God would build his temple? Back in January when we were looking at Paul's introduction in 1.1, I had quoted Dr. Joel Beakey. He said, this title of the apostle would have meant something to the hearers of this letter. It should also mean something to us. Beakey said, the chief instruments of God's new covenant revelation were the apostles. The Lord Jesus appointed apostles. They did not preach of themselves, but like the prophets of old, they spoke as the Spirit of God spoke in them. The role, the title of apostle and prophet, and we should see them as titles here, would have identified these men to the audience in Ephesus. These are the men who spoke the very word of God. If you were to ask a small child having grown up in the church, if they knew of a song that spoke about the importance of a good foundation, maybe it would take a little bit of explaining, but you would probably eventually get a beautiful childhood rendition of that old Sunday school song, The Wise Men Built His House Upon the Rock. That song is taken from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, where he said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The very foundation that Jesus expected that believers and thereby the believing church to be built upon was indeed his own words. So which is it? The apostles and the prophets or Christ's words? Today we recognize and we believe the Bible to be God's inerrant word and the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and it to be the true basis of our Christian union. What of these apostles and these prophets? In the time when Paul is speaking to these Ephesians, remember that we are now several thousand years removed. When he's speaking to these Ephesians, the church is still in its infancy. The canon of Scripture was as yet unfinished. And in this time, the Lord appointed the apostles and the prophets, not only to speak good news and speak probably a good sermon, but Paul and these apostles and these prophets spoke unassailable holy truth. They spoke the very word of God motivated by the Holy Spirit. These words were not up for debate or dispute. It was as if God himself had spoken, for through the Holy Spirit, God himself had spoken. So was it the apostles and the prophets or the words of Christ? Yes. Yes, it was. These apostles and these prophets, as they were aligned to Christ as their cornerstone, they formed the foundation for the church. They spoke the very word of God and gave us a firm foundation to build upon. The Bible. God's holy word. The complete word of God. 66 books that as originally written would comprise the Old and the New Testament. They are verbally inspired by the Spirit of God. They are entirely free from error. And this word of God would be the foundation on which God would build his temple, his church. One more piece on this. If you were to look back at Paul's building example and think of God building his temple, when do you lay the foundation during a building process? Do you progressively lay the foundation as it's built? Laying part of the foundation here, building some there, part of the foundation here, building some there? Or if you are building a building, do you lay the whole foundation together as one and then build off of that foundation? A foundation is not constantly molded as it grows. You lay and establish its entirety before you begin any construction 
because you need that whole foundation to work together and to be totally perfect and correct if you want your building to remain stable and stand. We know that you do not lay foundation after you start building. Our foundation as the church, as God's temple, is sure. The canon of Scripture is closed. And these modern prophets and modern apostles that would claim to infallibly preach new or developing revelation from God are nothing but false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing. There is no new revelation from God that does not come from God's revelation in the Word. And to believe that there is, is how you end up in the trouble of cults and false teachers. When Paul was speaking, the church in Ephesus didn't have a canon of Scripture except the Old Testament to go back to and check his words by. Paul was speaking the very words of God and was to be taken as such. But today, there is no one that can speak with that authority. The apostles were those as appointed directly by Christ, and anything we hear from any teacher needs to be brought back to the one source and authority of God's Word and say, does that fit here? And if the answer is no, we can safely throw it out and run. Jesus is called the cornerstone of this foundation because he is speaking through and by these apostles and prophets, but we have Jesus as this cornerstone that gives the perfect square and direction to all of it because he is the central piece. And it's important because this establishes that Jesus still is the core and directing force of all of Christendom. God didn't simply establish the church through Christ and then move on to work through these apostles and prophets. Christ is involved in the building of his church from the very ground up and continues to be. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28 said, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And in our passage this morning, we hear that that stone is indeed Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. We heard earlier in chapter 2, Paul said, Christ is our peace. And here we see that we are being joined together in Christ. That Christ is the glue that holds us together. He is the only means by which the church holds together. Some of you may know that I spent the greater part of my childhood growing up in Medicine Hat. And one thing that you may or may not know about Medicine Hat is its primary exports. And I mean, if you go to Medicine Hat, most of the symbolism you'll see is natural gas related. And that comes out of Jungle Book 
author Rudyard Kipling showed up there in 1906 and was quoted as saying, this part of the country seems to have all hell for a basement and the only trap door appears to be in Medicine Hat. So we have this very famous author talking about Medicine Hat that kind of overshadows one of the other huge exports of Medicine Hat. It was bricks. There was a huge brick and tile factory in Medicine Hat. It was closed in 2010. But when it closed, the Medicine Hat Brick and Tile Company had been making bricks there for 120 years. And unsurprisingly, having that huge factory there, there was some pretty impressive and large brick buildings that I was always very impressed by. I love when I go, usually they're government buildings, but I love when I go and I get to stand next to these huge brick buildings and see this whole monstrosity held together by these, this brickwork with this mortar in between. It's always been fascinating to me. These incredibly solid structures, some of them soaring many stories into the air. But for all of brick's strength, without mortar, quality mortar, well laid, bricks basically just become heavy-duty kids' building blocks. You can pile them up and push them over and pile them up and push them over, but there is no stability to them. They're strong, but they have no cohesion between themselves. Square rocks with no lasting stability. But laid properly and mortared together, these towering brick buildings, like I said, many of them are government buildings, they will lastly, likely last, likely last as long as human civilization if they're allowed to. On a foundation of God's perfect, wor perfect word, the household, the temple of God, is built. And if it wasn't enough that Christ be the foundation, Christ is also the mortar by which the entire structure holds together. I'd asked the question last week, what it is that could hold together such wildly different people as composed the church? What is it that could hold all of us different people together? What is it that could hold Elk Point Baptist Church together with the Sal Baptist Church in the Philippines, with Calvary Grace Church in Calgary, with churches in Korea and Argentina and Zimbabwe and every country around the world? What is it that could hold such incredibly varied people together. Look at our world. There is no force that we have found in all of humanity that will hold such disparate and different people together for any period of time. Well, maybe political parties you only have to look at the political parties to know that they divide like amoebas and they end up in splintered different directions. Ideologies and schools of thought splinter into warring factions. 
but in Christ, his church will hold together firm to the very end. Immediately, you may be thinking of the thousand and one different Christian denominations. Going, well, is that really holding together? If you have Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Mennonites and Lutheran and Pentecostal and Anglican, a million different splinters, it seems. But even these, if we are united by a commitment to the same foundation, God's Word, if we hold to the Word, we still find ourselves bound together. It's true that we disagree on some important doctrines. Going to the conference that Ed and I went to this past week, most of that group, we had a whole bunch of Baptists, we had some brethren folk, we had a few Presbyterians mixed in there, and if you were to sit us all down at the table, we would have some hearty theological arguments. The Baptists and the Presbyterians arguing over baptism, the Baptists and the uh, brethren folk arguing over church government and how it should be composed. But even with all of our differences, even with all of our disagreements that admittedly would probably get quite heated if we let them, we still had a common bond. We still were able to call one another brothers in Christ. I am happy to say that if the church will submit itself to the Word of God and believe it to be totally true and without error, and they are willing to follow the commands therein that I would call these brothers and sisters. So we might have a thousand and one different denominations, but within those, the ones that remain faithful to God's Word would still be called brothers and sisters in the faith. That being said, will we continue to pursue an ever more accurate interpretation of the truths found in Scripture? Of course. That's why it's worthwhile to have those theological discussions and arguments even within the church that we might sharpen our understanding. But even with many, many differences on secondary issues, the whole structure of God's church being joined together in Christ grows into a holy temple to the Lord. Driving back from our conference, I was listening to a book by German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This book is called Life Together. It's one of Bonhoeffer's kind of more well-known works. He said this, Life together under the Word will remain sound and healthy only where it understands itself as being part of the one holy Catholic Christian church, where it shares actively and passively in the sufferings and struggles and promise of the whole church. We share together the joys and the struggles of the Christian life and the sufferings of Christ as a whole and as a local church. That's why I was so encouraged to see so many of us yesterday. Because we shared 
in the sufferings of a dear sister and brother in the loss of Clinton. That's why I'm excited for the upcoming baby showers and the opportunities we have to celebrate with one another because we share together in the joys that have been given to us by Christ. And as he closes this section, Paul ends with kind of a curious sentence. He has all this to say, and then he says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Didn't he just say this? Why restate himself? And I think that with this final verse, Paul is trying to drive home what he's been saying in this whole chapter. Remember, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, specifically. And this is a church who was prepared to be and was, at one point, ostracized from the faith. And he reminds them, that in Christ they are no longer secondary believers. Even you who were at one time without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, with hope, without hope and without God in the world, even you now are progressively growing and being built into the very fabric of God's dwelling place on earth. And this morning, brothers and sisters, I pray that you would view yourself in this way. We do not have in ourselves any credit or pedigree by which we could claim to deserve to be God's dwelling. But we have no need of a pedigree except for the work of Christ, except being built on the foundation of of Christ and his holy word as revealed to us in his word by the apostles and the prophets. We now are a part of something bigger. In Christ, no single one of us is an island unto ourselves, and no local church is an island unto themselves. We believe that the local church is the visible and tangible expression of the body of Christ. And that it is purposed to display the distinct qualities of a God-glorifying community. That we as a church would display what God does and how God's people are to look. We believe that every church is distinct. Every church is led by its own leadership. But that leadership, as it submits to Christ, we are bound together with the other faithful churches across the globe. But coming back to the very core of our passage, the thing that I couldn't bear to have you leave here not being clear on, each believer, each church, Christianity as a whole, at each of these levels and at all of these levels, need to be committed to remaining totally bound to the foundation given to us by God in His Word. Be built up in the Word. Build your lives upon the Word. 
that you might be counted as the wise man who built his house upon the rock and not the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The shifting sands of human opinion or vain philosophies or anything else. God has chosen to build his church, his people, singular, us individually, his local church, Elk Point Baptist Church, and the Holy Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic, Catholic Church, all of God's people together. Each one of these levels God has chosen to build them on one foundation, the foundation of his word, Christ being the cornerstone revealed to us by the apostles and the prophets in his word. And as we leave from here this morning, I hope that we can carry as a badge of honor that we be called people of the word, people of the book. And that if you are to be called a person of the book, how can you be a person of the book if you do not know the book. I've said before a number of times, I can't preach you into a knowledge of the Word. I can give you snippets. But even if you sat here in, I mean, take a look at Jim's ministry here. He was the pastor here for 32 years. He didn't even come close to preaching through every passage in the Bible. And that's in 32 years if you never missed a sermon you still didn't get the whole Bible. A pastor is not enough to preach you into a fully orb knowledge of God's Word. And I want to know that as I'm preaching the Word, I'm preaching it to people who know the Word. I want to know that if I get something wrong in here, that you will call me on it because you know it as well as I do. I am not the paid guy to teach you the Word. I am the paid guy that gets to do ministry for a living, but I should be preaching to people who are doing ministry in everything that they do and are familiar with their Bibles. If you are to be building your life upon God's Word, then you must know Christ and know His Word. Brothers and sisters, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. And that spirit speaks to us by God's word. So it is my prayer that we would grow individually and locally and corporately into a temple of the spirit of the Lord and that we would be built up in his word day by day and moment by moment to his glory. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. Thankful that we as Gentiles no longer would be on the outside looking in, but that we would be welcomed that we would be brought into your kingdom and into your family. That we might worship and glorify you along with all of the saints from all time.
And Lord, we look forward to the day when we get to see you face to face and in your second coming and we can see people of every tribe and nation and tongue worshiping you together in spirit and in truth. But Lord, until that day, we worship here together as a local church body. And we know that we are held together by your Son, Jesus Christ. That we are built upon the words of Christ. Lord, may we be faithful to your word. May we not shift from the foundation that you've given us to any kind of thought of man or any kind of philosophy or teaching that does not accord with your word. Build us up into a temple in which you would be pleased to dwell. And may we be absolutely in awe that our God would come to dwell with men. Absolutely in awe that you would send your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be reconciled to you, that you could dwell with us. Lord, you are our God and we are your people. We thank you for these brothers and sisters that we worship together with. The ones we see every Sunday. The ones we watch on online, on YouTube videos, faithful teachers across the globe. The ones we visit when we go to different cities or different countries or around the world where we can sit with faithful brothers and sisters. And that we know that we do not worship you in a vacuum, but that we worship you together with a great cloud of witnesses. And may that serve to motivate our faithfulness to you, to help us to remain bound to your word. Lord, we commit the remainder of this morning and afternoon to you and ask that we would become people who are absolutely drawn to the truth that you have revealed to us according to your will in your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now with Paul, I say, peace to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen.